0: Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with thy most gracious favor, and further us with thy continual help, that in all our works begun, continued, and ended in thee, we may glorify thy holy name, and finally by thy mercy obtain everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. It's okay, I'm going to read over the, the scripture that we read this morning in church. Just one more time, very briefly, from John 20, beginning at the 19th verse. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus entered and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I think I'll stop right there. I I won't go. I'll read on the scripture in church this morning, continued when we got to that part about Thomas, that... Andrew talked about a little bit this morning. And I'm not stopping there because Thomas is not an important character in the history of our salvation. Uh, In fact, indeed, he is. Uh, As Andrew so skillfully pointed out, I thought, in this sermon, uh, it was necessary that Jesus visit Thomas. Because, you see, to be an apostle, as Andrew said, to be an apostle, you needed to have seen the risen Lord. But Thomas wasn't there. So, yes, blessed are those who, who believe and have not seen. It's like you and me, but Thomas wasn't there. So, Jesus pays him a personal visit and said, reach out and touch me. Thomas gets all the bad press. I know that, but really his doubt was no different from the rest of the apostles. They also got to see him. Thomas wasn't there. Uh, and uh, th- their uh, idea of resurrection was not on anybody's radar screen and i can guarantee if you and i would have been there we wouldn't have believed the story either well the reality of entering jesus jesus entering closed doors i think i could hear some people say to yourselves this is very natural well well <clears throat> jesus is not which is so well put i mean i don't know about you but i've heard that business too about god being a perfect gentleman he will not enter in unless you invite him whoa I mean you know I, and I always want to say well if that's the case and I, w- I couldn't be here I couldn't be here standing before you right now if that isn't the case but I al- al- always almost like you can hear people think well what about my uncle Luke or my sister-in-law or my whomever who died or perhaps will die uh, a hardened skeptic why if, if Jesus can go through hardened doors locked doors then, then then, then why didn't he? Why didn't he, he enter in? A couple of things that we will say about this before I continue on and get to the, to the theme of this class, which is uh, peace and boldness and believing. If, if, if what we can pull from the scripture is the holy, if the Holy Spirit wants you, uh, then it's, it's it's a done deal, and there's no power on earth that can st- stop the Holy Spirit. And we know this because the Bible tells us so. A couple of things to remember. And the first thing is something that the Calvinists, we call it the Calvinists, but I think is definitely scripture uh, and is certainly true to the English reformists, is something called irresistible grace, uh, which says that the power of, of, of the Holy Spirit's calling is uh, greater than human resistance. John, uh, is it 9 44? Anyway, from John's Gospel. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is Jesus talking. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at that last day. Well, the key word there, of course, is draw. And I've seen some, some translation use the word there, invite. And I, someone said, "Yeah, but mine says no one can come to me unless the Father invites him. That's different," they say. But the problem with that is it's a bad translation. And I, and I, I just told, I said, "That's a bad translation." This is, just a couple of weeks ago. And he said, "Well, I think it's a great translation. This particular Bible." And they picked it up to me and gave me the name of it. I won't say it because, I guarantee, your mother gave you one and it's precious to you, but. <laughs> But I said, it's a bad translation. Uh, and they said, well, I don't think it's bad because this is the only Bible I can read and thoroughly understand. I said, well, what's the use to understand it if it's a bad translation? It just seeing you, <coughs> just you uh, uh, not understand it. Uh, because uh, the Greek word there is actually, and I don't, I, don't, I don't proclaim to be or pretend to be a Greek scholar, but I took enough to do some serious word study. And the Greek word there is elko." And the word "draw" is very much you would like draw water uh, out of a well. You know, you don't you don't entice it to come up, you don't woo it to come up, you don't invite it to, to come up. You draw it up. And the Armenians, of course, insist that that it is it is a wooing, it is an enticement. Uh, yes, and this is true that what we say, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. But they say that this drawing is more like a wooing, uh, and, and surely. Uh, that that God doesn't make puppets. You know, we're just not puppets. So if we want to resist, and we can resist, we, we can resist. But that's not the power of of the Scripture. Power of Scripture is is uh, is the, the use of the word as it was used in Acts chapter sixteen nineteen, where it says the people seized Paul and Silas and elbowed them into the marketplace before the rulers. They didn't invite him. It's like a sheriff comes. He doesn't invite you to come down to the. He's got his handcuffs there, and he takes it takes you down to the, to the sheriff's office. That's the word that that same word that he used in Acts chapter 16 that they dragged Paul and Silas into the marketplace. Uh, so, irresistible grace. Have uh, you mentioned Paul on the road to D- Damascus? What did Paul have to do? You know, Paul certainly didn't invite Jesus into his life there while he's riding on his horse to to uh, Damascus, you know, he just got completely nailed uh, and, and knocked off his heart, horse, and Jesus says, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And, and of course, Paul was, was like a dead man, uh, and so as it relates to, well, you know, the Senate of Dort is a, is a big center they had in the 17th century, 1619 the fact where this whole thing with Arminianism and Calvinism or Augustinianism was debated. And here's what came out of that great synod, which the English Reformers picked up and which appears in our 39 articles. Those that teach men can resist the Holy Spirit and thus remain in his own power is taking away the efficacy of God's grace and subjecting the act of Almighty God to the will of men. So that was the former resolution of the Synod of Dort which became part of the Anglican theology. At any rate, as when it comes to Uncle Lou or your sister in law or whomever that has died or looks like they will die, a hardened skeptic, uh, we don't know. The, 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 the only response I have that is we don't know why God has not chosen to enter. But there are a couple of things we might remember. And the first thing that we might want to remember is that we really don't know what kind of faith known only to Uncle Lou and only to our sister-in-law or to only to whomever is in their heart. We might not, it might be more, it, it, faith the size of a mustard seed is what it's going to take. And that faith might be there despite their stubbornness and calling themselves a hardened skeptic. But even if we're right about the skepticism, we can rest assured that God knows exactly what he's doing. And there is a purpose. Uh, God, there's a purpose behind everything uh, that God does, and that purpose is known only to Him. And so, the response is we share our faith with Uncle Luke, we share our faith with with our sister-in-law, and then let God be God. And who else would you want to be calling the shots? So, since I heard all these thoughts, In my mind, people saying, I bet your people are asking because there's a part of me too that asked that same thing, but I need to be reminded that God knows what he's doing. Now, I want to talk more about the scene behind closed doors through which Jesus entered as it relates to peace and believing and confidence for life. So one more time, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut, doors being locked, where the disciples were for Fear of the Jews. And that fear is not... That fear is fear, fear. This is knee-knocking fear that they had. The same fear that is used when it says the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of all wisdom. We're talking about knee-knocking fear here. For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and entered in and stood among them. And what did he say? Peace be with you. An extraordinary thing under the circumstances. we we'll talk more about that in a minute. And then he showed him his hands and his eyes... And then the disciples were glad. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent sent me, even so I send you into the world. And he when he had said this he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. No one knows where this place is, other than the fact that it was near Jerusalem and that it was uh, that, that it was Apparently, a single room. Uh, that it was. Uh, the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. How many have seen the series? And, I, and I'm sure you have the series, the Bible on the History Channel. Uh, I know a lot of you have. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I haven't, uh, except for a scene or two. And I, I'll be. I'm, so many people have asked me about it, uh, and uh, sometimes really encourage me to look at. It. The reason I don't look at it and I didn't, haven't looked at it except for a scene two, is because I am just cranky and cynical and critical about things like that. And I've just learned myself enough to know. And I, and I, and I know I'm depriving myself of being so cynical and cranky and critical so often because I'm sitting there looking at it and I'm saying, wait a minute, that's all out of chronological order. And I wait a minute, he didn't say that. Not then. He didn't. He said it later in a different context. Or either uh, they didn't say that to Jesus. And Jesus w- and Jane sitting over there said, "Will you be quiet so I can listen to this thing?" And she's and she's constantly kind of just saying, "You know, hush, so I can hear it," or or else go into the other room. And I said, "All right, I'll go into the other room." So <clears throat> so I so I haven't. But I I, I realize that there, there's a lot of good in it. H- having said that. Uh, I, I don't know how this scene behind the closed door was depicted. Uh, did anyone see this particular, in, in that series, anyone seen this scene when disciples were behind closed doors? Was that lifted up? It was? I, he, he blows the door. Did, did, it, did it show a lot about the disciples, what they were doing up there before he came in? Well, Thomas wasn't there right then. You see, that's another thing that movie did. You know, like, they may have had Thomas there, but. Sure. And then she uh the, the, the and between the disciples? she says, and then she says, Yeah, okay, well, that's good because (laughs) there was a much older film. There was a much older film, and this goes back to 1978. I checked it. James Farentino. James Farentino was nominated for one of the Emmy Awards for his portrayal of Peter in this little mini-series, which was uniquely and creatively entitled Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) But... uh, Maybe you have seen a rerun of that. If you can get it, it's really good. What particularly was well done was about this particular film, Jesus of Nazareth, with, with uh, Farentino, uh, was depicting the state of mind of these men after, this, after the shocking ex- execution of Jesus, after his uh, preposterous claim to be the Messiah, the preposterous claim to be the Son of God And after, by the way, winning the hearts of these people completely, uh, Jesus was executed. He was unanimously condemned in the highest Jewish courts and then uh, executed uh, by the occupation powers representative Pontius Pilate. But there's been a lot of talk about the emotional and spiritual condition of these men who were hiding. And the first thing, of course, to mention is is what is... openly stated in the text is fear it was fdr who said uh, there's nothing to fear but fear itself well you know i don't think that would have had dis- these guys heard that i don't think that would have helped much uh and i, I, I think our exhortation is is uh, you know if you're afraid you're afraid but they were afraid of the jews why were they afraid of the jews they were afraid of the Jews because of their lives. There's a little that verse in, in uh, Ecclesiastes uh, 9, verse 4. A living dog is better than a dead lion. And so perhaps that was on the back of their minds. Uh, their faces would have been all over the area on, in the post office. They were wanted. I mean, people were out to get them, so there was fear. And James uh, job did a magnificent job of uh of depicting this, but also dissension. And that's uh, th- that's another thing that, that 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 was pressure, almost all, a lot of pressure most always brings in irritability. If you ever kept some people under pressure, you know, say, I'm sorry I did that, I was under a lot of pressure. I'm sorry I said that, I was under a lot of pressure and so forth. But, you know, it's, uh, that's, it, it, it's, Uh, And also dissension, it brings about uh, irritability and edginess after uh, a shock of something like this because anger and frustration and fear, it always needs a target. And the target can be a spouse, it can be someone you love, but these guys definitely take it out on each other. And that's one thing that this film really does a good job of. These guys are really, really going after it. Then on top of the fear and the dissension, there was the guilt. Uh, The guilt for wimping out. If only we had stuck by him. If only we had done this. If only we had done that. If only we. And under just ordinary circumstances, guilt in the, in the aftermath of unexpected death is so very, very common. And I see it over and over again. And that guilt, when you lose someone unexpectedly, is always in proportion to how much you love someone. Uh, You know, if you don't love them, you don't have guilt. But if you love someone a lot and they've died unexpectedly, uh, I've just seen in my pastoral ministry, I've seen over and over again how common guilt is. If only, if only I had been more insistent about this or that in his or her life. If only I would have reached out when I should have. If only I would have said, "I I love you one more time. If only I had... Look for reconciliation. If only I would said, I'm sorry. Uh, if only I would have done this. If only I would have done that. But the if only syndrome was so palpable in this upper room, uh, it, it, it's hard for us to imagine. And again, that film did an a excellent a job of this. And it was that one point where one of the disciples said, you know, we can play this if-only game if you want to, but I'll be honest with you. If we had to do it again, we'd cower it out again. You'd, we'd do it again. We'd coward it out. That's because it's in our hearts. We're wimping our hearts, and someone else said, you speak for yourself. You, you know, and then they would go after it, and it was just... But so you had fear. You had dissension. You had the guilt, which is so common. And I guarantee you, I'll be honest with you, I guarantee if-only is in a lot of hearts here right now today. And I can tell you that because there's a lot of if-onlys in my own heart. And I can only say, is we got to remember, because I've had to remind myself, it doesn't make it go away, <clears throat> but that is always in proportion to love. You don't love anybody, you don't feel that way. So in proportion to love, it's there. And I don't know what else to do with the if-onlys but give them to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't try to untangle the past. You know, there's no reprimand. He just, he just says... The brother will rise again. Lord, if only you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. He's, he doesn't say, now, now, don't do that. He said, your brother will rise again. <laughs> he goes, he takes it. He doesn't, play the, he doesn't play that if only game. It's not a defense. He just goes straight to the jugular. But above all, so is his guilt sin- syndrome, is his dissension, is his guilt. And the more we understand this, the more we're going to, the more we'll be overwhelmed and encouraged by the Total transformation that these guys receive after they see the risen Lord. This is part of the me that makes me realize that the the resurrection, it it has to be. The history of the early church, the way these these people were totally transformed uh, in the teeth of persecution and martyrdom was absolutely amazing. There's only one thing that could have done that to transform these people, and that is the apostolic witness, these guys who saw the risen Lord... He so, said, trust me, we have seen him. I have touched his side. He's there. And, and ghosts don't eat fish. We had a meal with him. He was raised. But the greatest of these is hopelessness that was in that upper room. St. Paul said, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. These people were grieving, and they didn't have a shred of hope. And there's nothing, I think, that will sink. Of all the things I've talked about, there's another nothing that will sink a man or a woman, into a greater depression uh, than to have no hope for a brighter future. I think that the human spirit uh, can survive a lot of things if there's hope, but it can't survive a thing if there is no hope. Where there is no hope, there is no life. Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl. This is a heavy quote. Now, I'm going to... A little warning here. you have children heavy, but he was one of Europe's leading psychiatrists. He served in uh, German prison camp, uh, Auschwitz, 42 to 45. But he saw that the difference between the survivors and the people who, who, who died uh, in, uh, in, in, the, in the prison camp, German prison camp, was not a matter of physical health. It was not a matter of strength. What made the difference between the living and the dead was something to live for beyond the barbed wire. To something, to to have hope in something beyond the barbed wire. To have hope for for to have hope to go home. To have hope for a brighter future. Listen to what he said. This thing has hit me between the eyes. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed or to wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats of the had any effect, he just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought on by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own escrita, and nothing bothered him anymore. You know that's 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 heavy that's heavy stuff, uh, and if it's if it's too heavy, I apologize. But again, the more we can realize how these guys felt in the aftermath of this execution, I think the more. If that's, too, I'll tell you what. If that's too heavy, let me read something else to you. W. H. Auden, famous poem "Funeral Blues." Anybody familiar with that? Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dog from barking with the juicy bone. Silence the pianos and muffle with muffled drum. Bring out the coffin. Let the mourners come. Let the aeroplanes circle moaning overhead, scribing in the sky the message, He is dead. Put crepe bows around the white necks of so the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east, my west, my working week and Sunday rest. My noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can come to any good. Then Jesus entered the locked doors and said, Peace be with you. Isn't that amazing? Now, you talk about grace in unexpected places. <laughs> I, the first place I say grace in unexpected places, the first one I would say the most blatant would be uh, on the cross when uh, the one of the thieves says, You know, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said basically, I can do better than that. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, that that's grace in unexpected places. Uh, this guy didn't know anything about anything except he saw in Jesus as Savior. And I would say the next gr- greatest uh, unexpected grace, uh, grace in unexpected places would be right here when he entered that, that upper room. After what happened, considering the grievance of these guys, uh, he didn't say, you know, come through there and say, all right, you sleazeballs. i tell you what. We got a bone here to pick. I got a serious bone to pick. No, he didn't do that. He just said, peace be with you. And they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, let's be sure to see, however, Jesus didn't condone their behavior. This wasn't kind of a modern-day self-esteem guy in the scene. He didn't say, look, Peter, I know you denied me three times. You you lied and denied me and turned your back on me when I needed you most. But you know what? Dead man is better than, I mean, a dead lion is better than a living dog. You did what you had to do. And uh, I, I can understand you had to save your life. And remember, Peter, you're the one that cut the soldier's ear off. And so you stood up when a lot of people didn't. So now you go look in the mirror and just say, you know, I'm good enough. And doggone it, people like me. Go ahead, do that, Peter. You know, none of that. <laughs> but, you know, had, had, that been, had that been the story, you think Peter could become the rock of the church? He could not have become the rock of the church. Yes, Peter had boldly denied Jesus three times, but after, this, uh, after receiving the transforming power of forgiveness, Peter would not only not continue to boldly deny Jesus when he left that upper room, and started walking around uh, the the in, in Jerusalem, but he boldly proclaimed Jesus Christ and Him risen from the dead. One of the great friends of any preacher or teacher of the Bible is a concordance, and you can always you can get your concordance now computer. You just type in boldness, type in boldness, and see where it occurs in the New Testament. Where it occurs, that word translated in English boldness. Is mainly in the book of Acts, right after the resurrection, with great boldness, the apostles proclaimed Jesus. Not in the teeth of a slap in the wrist, but in the teeth of, the, but when they were threatened with their lives, and thrown in jail, beaten, uh, and rumors of of, of of people wanting to hang them and execute them and crucify them upside down, with great boldness did they go out after, after after this scene. Uh, and this is not peace and boldness of the human spirit. This is not, this is not self-confidence, but this is confidence uh, in the power of God that is made perfect in weakness and being absolutely confident that nothing could separate them from the love of God in the risen Jesus Christ. And so what the disciples received in that room that night they were commissioned to go out into the world and give to the world. Verse 22 and when they had said this he breathed on them and said receive the Holy Spirit. If you receive the sins of any they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any they are retained. And so when Jesus breathed on these guys, these the frozen chosen as we called in this up when the frozen, when he breathed on the frozen chosen, the apostolic church was born. This is John's Pentecost right this is John's Pentecost experience <clears throat> and from that evening forward they will go out in peace and boldness uh, and in hope and in confidence and they are commissioned with a, minister, with, with, with a message as Andrew said and if you believe that message you receive forgiveness of sins and if you don't receive that message then whatever is unforgiven stays unforgiven <clears throat> And he breathed on them <clears throat> and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. You know, that's, <clears throat> that's used in a lot of ordination services. Where actually the bishop comes on, in essence, you know, I don't know about the breathing, but he puts his hands on it and makes them makes them uh, sent out in the name of the church. <clears throat> I would like just to just take a second. I hope you find this humorous. I don't I did, but it's powerful, too. This is John Calvin's com- commentary on John 20, <clears throat> John 20, says, And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Here's John Calvin on that, which would which be one of Mark Gentilette's. He's doing, he's doing Luther this Thursday. The following Thursday, we're doing, he's doing Calvin. And then the third Thursday, we're doing Bart. On Calvin. <clears throat> Here we go. Although... Jesus remains the only shepherd of his church. He must need put forth the power of his spirit in the ministers whose work he uses. And this also he testified by an outward symbol when he breathed on the apostles. For it would be meaningless if the spirit did not proceed from him. So much the more hateful is the sacrilege of the papists. Who seize to themselves their honor which belongs to the Son of God? For their mitred bishops boast that, in making sacrificing priests, they breathe out the spirit when they belch over them. But the fact plainly shows how different their stinking breath is from Christ's divine breathing. For all they do is to change horses into asses. <laughs> Boom. John Calvin. But there's a lot of power behind what he's got to say there. No, he didn't mince words. All right, we have a few minutes. I'd be glad to talk about something. Hope I didn't sound dismal. You know, because, you know, that thing about uh, uh, Victor Frankl here. But these guys were pretty hopeless. they had lost all hope, and they had you know let the traffic cops wear black black gloves. We thought love would last forever, but it is gone. It's an amazing amazing I, I just I loved Andrew's sermon today. you know gosh, for the resurrected Lord this, everything changes. Everything changes with Jesus' resurrection. There's not a thing going on in your life right now that cannot find hope because of Easter. And Jesus said, Behold, I make all things new. In the light of Easter morning, everything changes. Everything. I did uh, clinical pastoral education in Washington, D.C., Children's Hospital, and I worked. And, I, you know, I, I did that because of that. I, I had a kind of heart for kids. I had no idea what I was getting into I at mean, the emotional level. And I, was, I, I, I worked, one one of the floors I worked was the AIDS, where these little tiny little children had AIDS. You know, obviously, there was one little girl called Tina, 11 years old, and she was, uh, I, I worked with her uh, a number of times. and No family. In fact, she was so abandoned by her parents, she used to fantasize the parents to visit because she said, you just, you just miss Mama. And I said, "Well, I, you know, I want to see your mama." So I left the nurse a note, and nurse called me back. She said, yeah. "She said she she, no, the mom ain't been here in months." So I said, "Oh my God!" Came to visit her one time, <clears throat> and uh, they had taken Tina to a children's hospice. The nuns there to a children's hospice, and I went in to visit her, and oh my gosh, you know, it was so. Uh, it, what I saw was was just so. Uh, you know, I I don't, I guess. I won't tell you what I saw, but leaving there, I could hardly walk. And I'm thinking to myself, w- "What do people do without Easter? What, what, <laughs> what, what, what possible? What can I can understand, Victor Frankl? You know, I, I just, I think I would just soon quit everything—not just the ministry, but just plain including the ministry—but just quit hoping. I don't, I don't like and read a book of Ecclesiastes, you know, but. but but, in, in, but as, you, as I left the hospice, though, going out, there's a, little, there's a little sign that the nuns pick up, and it said, Behold, I make all things new. That was the verse. Frank, um, the, I don't mean this as a political question, uh, but in Andrew's sermon, you talked about the bishop who said it wouldn't matter if Jesus' bones were found. What, what kind of Easter Sunday did she have at her church? What did, what did they talk about? <laughs> Nothing. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's happening all over. I saw a, uh, a memo from some Episcopal Church in Chicago my son sent me. It had stations of the cross on Friday. You know what the stations were? It was re- various kinds of recycling. I Listen, I am all for I am all for that. I mean, I, I, I am a big recycler and uh, I'm becoming more and more involved in, uh, in, in what little bit of role I can do into making this earth a, a cleaner, better place, but on station on Good Friday, when they had the different stations, and this is for recycling this, and this is something else, and this is—I uh, I, I wish I had it so I could read it to you because I can't tell you how—I how, can, I just can't tell you that. I mean, I, how how sad it is. So uh, it was right here. Well, I won't beat that to death. If Jesus had lived and been 85 years old and died a natural death, nothing would change. That's right here. <clears throat> I don't want to sound pessimist because, listen, I have a high doctrine of God's providence. And I know you share that too. And we all share a high doctrine of God's providence. He can walk through closed doors. He can call Lazarus out of the grave. He knows what's going on. And we're just called to be faithful and keep preaching, and let God decide how He's going to use us. And God is in control, uh, and nothing can change that. And He proved He's in control by, by what happened on Easter morning, and in other places. So uh, we just uh, trust God. And I, I, don't know what the future holds, but that uh, you would think it would be in a Unitarian church, but no, man, these guys have collars on, and purple shirts. Mm-hmm turning horses into asses doing ordinations. <laughs> That's all they're doing. <laughs> they have stinking breath. They belch on these guys. <laughs> and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. There's nothing new under the sun. As Ecclesiastes said, not a thing. It's no worse than it ever has been. No better either. No worse. But we have hope. One Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism. I really am upbeat. Now, you know, don't. (laughs) I promise you I am. And I'm upbeat because he is risen. The Lord is risen indeed, man. Everything changed. I am upbeat. I promise you. Nothing. I sing in the mornings. I sing in the shower. For one reason. Same reason you do. And that's because God's got the last word. He's in charge. Let's go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God.